I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by Shibli Telhami, the Anwar Sadat Chair at the University of Maryland, a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution, and most importantly, a founding member of the POMEPS uh, board, advisory board. Uh, he's the author of a whole bunch of books, including The Stakes, The World Through Arab Eyes, The Peace Puzzle, and again, most importantly, my co-author in the book, <laughs> The One State Reality. Uh, Shibli, thank you so much for joining us uh, uh, on this week's podcast. Always a pleasure. So I, I invited you on today uh, to talk about issues related to Gaza, to U.S. foreign policy, to a whole bunch of things that we're both very interested in. But most urgently, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the new uh, wave of the Middle East Scholars Barometer that we conducted in mid-November. Uh, we published an article together in the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, uh, this week. And um, why don't we start by having you describe a bit the origins of the barometer, how we run it, and uh, what we think we're measuring. Um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, actually, when you and I had that conversation about it. Obviously, I've been doing public opinion polls for a long time. Uh, I, if we want to actually time it, it's uh, since the mid-1980s. I mean, it's that long. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we've... Uh, uh, I've obviously done a lot of polling in the U.S., um, uh, but also, as you know, in the Arab world and in Israel itself. So we, we've done a lot of polling, but recently, particularly with the, my own uh, critical issues poll at the University of Maryland, which I direct, um, we've been focused on uh, a public opinion uh, in the U.S., um, not just about the Middle East, obviously about the Middle East and foreign policy. That's a one of the themes that we carry out because we do tracking, uh, but uh, also about other issues, foreign policy and domestic issues. Right now, uh, for example, we focused on race politics in America. We were doing a big study on that. And uh, we've uh, tracked Ukraine uh, very closely with lots of interesting results over time. So I remember that when about um, roughly about three years ago, when you, you and I started thinking about this, I, I contacted you because uh, we know that, you know, the, 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 there's not a voice for the Middle East scholars uh, in the conversation. And, you know, in our discourse, particularly when the Middle East is taken up in the public discourse, people refer to experts and, and so forth. And, and obviously, it's very different from what we consider experts in the academy mm -hmm. on these issues, people who didn't have a voice. So it, it was like kind of an interesting thing to try to figure out where people are. And, and in all honesty, you know, we do more or less because we share, obviously, we, you and I have been in this community for a long, long time, and both of us political scientists. So we're both there, you know, with the, the political science community, mm -hmm. but also the Middle East uh, community. And so in a, in a way, you know, you don't really know exactly. I mean, you you know, you, you interact with a limited number of people, you think, you know, where the, where the bulk of the the field is, but you have a very good idea. So when I um, proposed that, I think it was, you, you know, you we didn't really know whether this is going to become institutionalized and we'll carry it out, but we thought we'd try it. And we we gave it a try. It worked out really well. We had, um, I was very surprised by how many people responded positively, um, because that's really the critical. You have to have a critical mass. Uh, and, um, and people want to be heard. You know, people want their voices uh, represented. So, uh, so it's been interesting because we've yeah. covered, you know, obviously political, foreign policy issues, um, 
but we've also covered, you know, research issues related to COVID and limitations of COVID on on their lives. We've and and, and this in this case we we covered uh, the issue of self censorship, which is obviously central right now. Yeah, and I remember when we when we did the first survey three years ago, and we've been running them uh, every six months roughly uh, since then. This is the sixth one, um, but I remember the the a lot of the feedback on that first one was people saying, "Wow, you know, I, I never really had any idea what uh, what my peers thought. I didn't realize that so many people thought that." or that I was such a minority or that sort of thing. And so I thought that among the the academy itself, there was a real hunger for that. But then it was also quite useful in terms of projecting outward into the non-academic community saying, look, you know, these are people who spent their entire career studying the Middle East. These are people who have deep knowledge of, of the countries and regions and issues. And, you know, if so many of them think this, you should probably listen to them. Yeah, although of course you're going to find uh, attempts at delegitimation because when Absolutely. when what you're projecting is something that is different from the mainstream, uh, you know people are going to discount the group or there will be attempt to discount the group, and that's what we've obviously witnessed uh, quite a bit. Yeah, and what we tried to do though, and I think this is important, is that we really uh, we built our invitation list and our mailing list from a number of different professional associations to avoid um, trying to only get like one click or one one segment. So we, we use the MESA list of the Middle East Studies Association, POMEPS, the Project of Middle East Political Science, this, which hosts this podcast, but also the APSA, uh, the American Political Science Association has a Middle East section and the American Historical Association allows people to, to list uh, the Middle East as one of their specialties. And we've been able to see kind of the demographics of the poll over the years. And uh, it's, I think it leads us to say that, we, you know, we've gotten a very good response rate and we've had a really good cross section of, of the field, um, which has been, uh, you know, kind of useful, I think, especially when you can start tracking things like, as we do in this survey, uh, changes across generations, like what full professors think versus what graduate students think, or um, people inside the United States or outside the United States. So things like that, I think, have given some real enduring value to uh, to the survey. For sure. And I think that it's interesting, too, because we, we have both political science and obviously we have critical mass. Uh, that's political science. We have... Uh, Right now, in this particular poll, uh, slightly more than half are actually political scientists. In the past, we've had, you know, more even, uh, but it, it it also gives us, you know, particularly differentiating political scientists from non-political scientists and differentiating uh, Middle East uh, uh, Mesa Mesa members from non-Mesa members, uh, because we have a, a, again a, a very large segment that's non-Mesa members. So it, it really gives us a way of comparing. The interesting thing is. We haven't seen dramatic differences uh, across fields uh, or across memberships. So that itself has been enlightening. Yeah, very much so. Well, let's talk about this survey wave itself and our article in the Chronicle and kind of these issues of self-censorship and uh, kind of campus uh, suppression of free speech. Uh, I can't think of a uh, let's let's be let's be frank. I mean, that's what we see in the survey is a great deal of suppression of freedom of speech or at least attempts to do so. So walk us through the uh, construction of the survey and uh, the types of questions we asked and some of the key findings. Yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't uh, to be honest, I wasn't really expecting uh, what what you just called suppression of speech. I think that came across more in the comments mm -hmm. that uh, we did. We didn't design it that way, honestly. Uh, 
in, we knew there would be self-censorship because we've done that one time a year ago. Yeah, we asked uh, that. And, and some of the questions were, um, were designed that way. Um, a year ago, we basically uh, focused on the Middle East broadly, not on, uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And we asked questions about the extent to which people self-censor. And we found that a, a, a majority, slight majority, actually did self-censor. I think it was like 57%. Um, and it was more so among young scholars, which obviously we um, we expected, and and we asked uh, sort of you know where where the fears come from, you know whether it's uh, external pressures or campus culture uh, and uh, things of this sort. Uh, so it gave us a good idea. And so when we designed this round, uh, given that it was happening in the middle of the Gaza War, we knew there would be implications. We still repeated the same question about the Middle East, um, uh, self-censoring over Middle Eastern issues, but we added the self-censoring specifically over the Israeli-Palestinian issue uh, and a follow-up question to that as well. So um, so that the, the, the interesting thing there is that um, with regard to um, the question that we repeated about Middle East self-censorship, uh, there has been a rise uh, in the number of people who said they self-censor from something like 57% to 69%. So even broadly about the Middle East, we found a, a spike that is correlated with the, with the Gaza war. In fact, we did find that um, three quarters of respondents said that, in fact, they have been self-censoring more since the Gaza war. So we know there was a direct correlation between the self-censorship and the war. But the, the, the more interesting and immediate uh, question was the one that we asked about Israel-Palestine, um, the extent to which mm-hmm. the people self-censor on this issue. And I think that um, uh, there, um, I was not shocked given what we found last year, but it was all still still kind of the degree to it was really, um, you know, so uh, big mm-hmm. that it, it was noticeable. In fact, that you had... 82% uh, of American-based respondents. Um, now this, I mean, we need to clarify this. The, the poll itself was among members of these organizations, especially in the Middle East, including ones who are not American, mostly in European, uh, Canada, other speaking, you know, English speaking uh, countries, but also some in the Middle East. Um, and. However, the majority is American-based, and we have more than sixty percent, almost two thirds, like yeah. that are American. Uh, uh, two thirds are American-based, so we have we have a netted like nine hundred twenty-six respondents, most of them obviously in the U.S. But we did separate the two so we can get a little bit more of a clarity, since the self-censorship now is important to American campuses to just discuss that. The fact that eighty-two percent and almost all assistant professors. More than 98% of assistant professors say they self-censor. Almost the same number of graduate students. It's stunning. Now, the question is what they censor about. Now, in the uh, previous poll, when we asked about the Middle East a year ago, we didn't really get into that because it was such a broad issue about the Middle East generally. On the Israeli-Palestinian issue, said, was, is it you're holding back on criticism of the Palestinians, criticism of Israel? or criticism of the U.S. Well, it's fascinating that only 2% said criticism of the U.S., uh, but you have almost 82%, of, you know, 81% of those who said they self-censor 
said they self-censor when they when they oh, criticism of Israel, and about eleven percent said they self-censor criticism of the Palestinians. So that alone was interesting. Um, but what is also interesting is the the sources of worries. Where where the worries come from? I think that was interesting uh, and worth talking about. But also that you had this idea, which I didn't think was going to work initially, but it ended up working brilliantly, which is let's include a box for them to provide comments. We, we establish a limit of 50 words uh, just to give a sense of what examples they have when they're answering about self-censorship. And that ended up providing a, an amazing window, much more than I expected, in from directions I didn't expect. And so many of our colleagues wanted to tell the stories that I was really surprised. I didn't expect that many would actually uh, take the time to write something and include it in the poll. The poll is designed to be efficient, not to take people's time, to be relatively short, but people want to talk. Yeah, and I can say a little bit about those comments since uh, I took the first cut at uh, at diving into them. And at first, I, I like you, I wasn't expecting all that much. But as I dove into it, and, and we had pages and pages and pages and pages of these comments, and they really painted this picture, which I think needs to be understood. Um, and you know the the story that we were getting there uh, was was diverse. This was not like everyone speaking with one voice. There were a number of people who said things along the lines of, uh, "All of my colleagues are pro Palestinian, and I just keep my mouth shut because I don't want to get on the wrong side of them." There were a few like that. But the overwhelming majority of it is people telling story after story of uh, being gone after by the media, of having their uh, administrators, their deans, college presidents, um, even senior colleagues, um, you know, telling them to keep their mouths shut, being required to uh, put uh, any uh, any comments through the public affairs office being left off of all campus uh, kind of events or having a permits for events denied. And the thing which I found really interesting about this, and we mentioned this in the Chronicle uh, article, is that there's there's these high profile issues. I mean, there's been a lot of really, really good national media coverage of what's happened at Columbia, uh, at Penn, where the director of the Middle East Studies Center stepped down um, over over uh, administration interference. Um, there's a lot of stories like that. But what really catches you in these comments is just the relentless day-to-day -day grind of scholars who are being ignored, who are being told to shut up, who are having their expertise devalued or de 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 denigrated. And that was one of the real things which um, I think wouldn't have come out if we hadn't given those open-ended uh, opportunities. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too, um, because as you said, um, the examples that um, that came out were uh, more graphic, as I should say, than I expected. And, and, and from places that I didn't necessarily expect in the same volume, uh, you expect uh, individual ones to come. But one of the things that was really interesting is that uh, when we asked the question about the sources of worries, so we have the, the number one, you know, over half saying uh, uh, that they worry about uh, uh, campus culture and uh, student reaction, followed by external pressures from, from external groups, which was also a little over half who said that it was the second most frequent uh, 
cause. Now, the second one we sort of anticipated, this is not something, uh, you know, we knew about it well before the war. There were groups always who kind of weigh in on campuses, bringing uh, kind of political power, national influence into, into uh, campus. But the first one, when I when we first, you know, kind of put it out there, I was thinking of it as a mixed bag because I'm not thinking of it necessarily as a bad thing always because self-censorship has kind of a, you know, positive, if it's at least not misrepresenting yourself or, or lying or, or telling the truth, but being diplomatic, a little bit holding back, um, there's nothing, you know, in, in respect for your students who might have feelings, uh, who might, you know, I, I, I'm always mindful of being respectful of my students, whether they're, uh, uh, you know, Israeli or Palestinian, uh, Jewish or, or Muslim or Arab, or whatever they are. You know, you you have to be respectful, particularly in times of crisis with the pain. You have to, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, still tell the story the way it should be told, but you have to do it in a way that respects them uh, and respects their feelings and and understands and interact. I mean, a lot of people do that. We do that in real social life. We don't tell people, you know, we 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 kind of, you know, diplomacy is all about that too. So that part is not particularly surprising or necessarily negative if it's not overdone, right? If it's if it's not done at the expense of objectivity or at the expense of misrepresenting reality. Um, so I was expecting a lot of that, especially since we had a majority of people say that's the number one. But you know, honestly, in the in the in the examples that we had, uh, we didn't find anybody practically say I'm I'm uh, self censoring because I'm being mindful of uh, how what people might react in a in a positive way. More was a projection of fear than a projection of respect now is this is this kind of accurate with your kind of interpretation of these yeah uh, definitely and one of the things that i wanted to emphasize what i was trying to get at before is that a lot of these things don't make the headlines because you know the people ultimately maybe there's a you know a media firestorm and uh, they get hauled before a disciplinary committee or the deans talk to them and ultimately it's okay right they're they're not fired they're not disciplined but the emotional energy, the uh, the fear, the way that the the possibility of this like haunts every you know step you take, I think is the thing which uh, came through in a lot of the of the open ended comments. Uh, people talked about that the emotional and mental toll, and how then, as you said, you know they 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 then live they they're afraid to speak their mind because of the fear that someone's got a camera on them. And next thing you know, they're going to be at the center of this manufactured controversy and critically that they don't believe that their administrations are going to have their back. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's the part that um, also surprised me um, in, in a way that they, they don't find institutional support for themselves. Um, and, and this is something I think that, um, you know, I'm holding a uh, uh, conversation next week on campus uh, uh, issues. Uh, having two of our colleagues, you know, um, uh, Amani Jamal, who's the dean of the School of Public Policy at, at Princeton, and uh, and and uh, 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 Karen Garhielo uh, from uh, Columbia University, who's the dean of SIPA there, who've written a piece together about sort of the. Mm -hmm. uh campus conversation about about the war 
Um, I'm having I'm having uh, that conversation with them and, uh, and also represented with the American Civil Liberties Union uh, on this issue uh, as a Sadat forum uh, on the 12th. Um, so I'm looking forward to that conversation with the thoughtful people who obviously are dealing with it. You're both scholars and understand the scholar issues, including on issues that we cover, uh, plus our ad administrators who are dealing with it from different perspectives and have to weigh in. Um, I don't know whether our necessarily our university presidents or our um, uh, deans. Um, in, in my case, I think the uh, you know the the I know them. They're 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 involved. They engage. They they kind of try to stay close to both the faculty and still have to deal with issues that come from the outside. Uh, but I'm not sure that's true across the board. Um, that that. Um, you know, in a way, faculty are the easiest groups uh, to take for granted, I guess, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's something to uh, to consider, to think about. Having given a lot of thoughts at this point in terms of how this works, uh, this was a, really a new avenue for us. We haven't, I mean, this, this set of questions, right. uh, um, uh, we need to we need to give it a little bit more, but everybody's going to have to reconsider it because obviously it's not just about Israel Palestine. I mean, this is this is about the academy, in, the academic enterprise, and the integrity of the academic enterprise. Uh, we need you know everybody has to be mindful. Absolutely. There's one other thing which uh, I think it'll be interesting if we ask these questions again to see if the numbers uh, change or go up, and that's uh, something which kind of surprised me. Um, that in the, in the American sample, at least, this is less true for the non-American sample. Um, relatively few people said that they were worried about kind of legal problems, uh, you know, the you know the you know kind of government uh, interference or, or law. And I actually wonder how long that's going to be the case. You look at things that are happening in in Florida and Texas, and the uh, law that's making its way through the courts where I live now in Ohio. Um, these things are highly politicized and aiming to establish uh, regulations over what can be taught in the classroom. And then you've got these anti-BDS legislation like in Arkansas to get paid by, as a vendor in Arkansas. You have to sign a, a, a this, what seems to me a patently illegal document saying that you won't boycott Israel. Um, but these are things where they're at. And then just the other day, you have uh, the presidents of Penn and Columbia or Harvard and MIT being dragged in front of a congressional committee to talk about anti-Semitism on campus. And it seems like the the trend right now could very well be towards more direct governmental regulation of things specifically on Israeli-Palestinian affairs, which I think people around the country are starting to wake up to the fact that this is something which is going to have massive ramifications for academic freedom, for campus culture. You know, it always used to be, you know, everyone is like uh, for free speech and everything except Palestine. But I don't think, like you're saying, I don't think you can hide that off anymore. And as this, as we're seeing these legal changes happening, um, I'm really quite worried about what we might start seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we started seeing it a little bit during the Trump administration, right? With, I mean, the divide in America, the cultural divide, for one thing, it's not just a, obviously a partisan divide. It's, it's deeper than a partisan divide, but we started seeing, you mentioned Florida, but that, that, that's kind of, you know, a, a divide that you see intellectually, politically, and, uh, and it's mustering political clout, which is obviously, uh, more a function of a, distribution societal power than uh constitutionally based uh we see that in you know in every 
political process in America, from gun control to pharmaceuticals to foreign policy, um, and and bringing those uh, you know sources of power in politics and society into arenas that had been somewhat insulated from them, and and it didn't happen strictly on Israel-Palestine. I mentioned, I mean, in, during a Trump administration, that wasn't even the principal arena of intervention. Right, and, and it had to do with uh, race politics, for example, where where we saw that coming in and and intruding into the academy. Now we see it focus more on Israel-Palestine during the Gaza war. So yeah, it's much bigger than the question of Israel-Palestine, and I don't think that both the academic um, academics in general, um, professors, scholars, uh, staff, uh, academic administrators um, had had. Um, Taken, looked at this closely enough, given the speed of the political move and the clock that could be brought upon because of the funding of academic institutions, obviously, that much of which comes from government sources, which are more dependent on sources of power. Um, there is a lot there that can be done politically unless it's prevented systematically, you know, by, uh, you know, counter force within uh, the, the institutions themselves, but also across society. And I think something is happening here that needs uh, protection. We've been talking with Shibli Tahami about our recent uh, uh, article in the Chronicle of Higher Education and the wave of Middle East Scholars Barometer. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, welcome back. We're uh, still speaking with Shibli Talhami of the University of Maryland. Um, and uh, before we were talking specifically about the part of the middle of the Middle East Scholars Barometer focused on issues related to campus uh, freedom of speech and self-censorship and that sort of thing. But the barometer uh, itself asked a number of other questions uh, about Israel and Palestine. But I think more broadly than that, Shibli, you and I have been working on a number of projects, including the book, um, the One State Reality, which we edited with uh, Nathan Brown and Michael Barnett, and the four of us also co-authored uh, this uh, piece in Foreign Affairs, uh, Israel's One State Reality, which generated quite a bit of controversy long before October 7th. Um, and I think it might be interesting to talk about all of that a little bit, um, kind of uh, the, the you know, what Gaza's war has revealed uh, for each of us about uh, this framework of a one state reality and kind of how we understand what we're actually talking about in Israel and Palestine today. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, um, you know, one thing that we need to make clear and, and, and sort of conceptually to to to. Uh, give context to this conversation is that we have basically argued that uh, it was in practice a one-state reality that includes uh, Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel uh, that's controlled by Israel itself. And it's an unjust reality uh, akin to apartheid, particularly with regard to uh, uh, the occupied territories. Uh, and that this, our notion was focused on um, the notion of state, which is about control not so much about the way the international community sees it, because we we saw the legitimacy of the international uh, uh, constituency view to be uh, uh, something about uh, uh, acceptance of legitimacy, uh, international law, that there was not really kind of uh, uh, undermining that in our own uh, perception. But one of the things that we didn't have is propose a solution. Uh, so 
we didn't think there was anything really on the table, uh, whether it's one state with equality or two states or a confederation uh, that were likely. Uh, and therefore, uh, certainly in the article, we focused ourselves on sort of things that the U.S. can do to at least uh, not make things worse or at least create a situation where possibilities might open. So we didn't have a solution. Uh, we didn't rule out the idea of two states. Uh, uh, we didn't rule it out. Uh, we, we, we all, all, all four of us mm-hmm. had supported two states and uh, stated that if, if it's, uh, it could become impossible tomorrow, we would recommend to Israel and Palestinians to, to grab it as, as a, you know, something that might work. Uh, but we didn't see it. And we, we, worse, we thought that everybody was using it more as a smoke screen to cover up a reality they don't want to deal with. So that's kind of our approach rather than mm-hmm. our approach having a solution. Now, um, did this uh, war shift any of our, our thinking or open up new possibilities? Let me start actually with the latter point, which is um, to the extent that we didn't rule out a two-states idea, could this crisis be the kind of crisis that could reshuffle the thinking enough to make it a possibility again? Um, I would say that we still don't know how this is going to end. Mm-hmm. We do not know how this is going to end. And anybody who thinks they know, they, they, they really are not following this closely enough. So we don't know, you know how the Israeli military operation is going to end, who's going to be declared a winner or a loser. Uh, and I think everybody's going to be a loser, honestly, in, in more ways than one. But nonetheless, at least in perception, uh, yeah, it's like Saddam Hussein declaring he won the Iran-Iraq war after he destroyed, you know, both countries, much of, you know, the Korean must have both both countries in the end. Uh, obviously, Iraq was weakened, but he quote, had the upper hand. I don't see something here were, uh, uh, except for both losing, but somebody declaring more, losing less than the other and having maybe the, uh, the upper hand. Um, assuming that there would be some kind of a state stalemate, meaning somebody thinks that it's still not settled and we don't know how we're going to settle it. There could be an opportunity for diplomacy, theoretically, uh, in a way that we haven't seen before, because the Israelis honestly are asking lots of questions. Do we want to repeat this again and again and again and again? Uh, is there an end inside? Obviously, they could decide like the the far right wants to have a, uh, you know, um, expelling Palestinians or or uh, it could be emboldened to do more, right? Uh, to, to have an exclusively Jewish state or, or something along these lines. Uh, but, but more likely, there's still going to be an unsettled set of questions and people don't have answers. And the same thing among Palestinians, you know, is going to be, uh, are we going to repeat this over and over again? Um, Arab world, obviously the same, because in the Arab world, yes, um, uh, governments have different strategic calculus than the public, but they have to pay attention to the public now more than before. And um, you and I know that um, this public right now has been so impacted by the scale uh, of the war in Gaza and the horrific, um, uh, you know, uh, suffering that um, it's going to last. This is maybe a, maybe a generational thing, not just a, a moment that's going to uh, end when 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 the fighting stops. Uh, yeah. uh, so I think 
in that case, Chibi, can I can I just go back to your old book, uh, The World Through Arab Eyes, which was obviously written back during you know the Iraq War and War on Terror and that sort of thing. But I think it's really relevant right now in this period where people are seeing fundamentally different wars. Uh, Israelis are seeing a war which is very, very different from the war that Americans are seeing uh, following kind of Western media. Arabs watching Al Jazeera, watching social media, are seeing a much more violent, bloody war than even Americans are seeing. And I think the disconnect between that, as well as like the identity and emotional valences that come with that, are it's one of the most dramatic disconnects I think I, I've seen in quite some time. But certainly it's the sort of thing you were talking about in your book. Yeah, there's no question about the source of information has been incredibly important and, and different. We could even see it here in our own public, right? Why young Democrats or young people generally have been a lot more sympathetic with the Palestinians uh, than the rest of the public in, in the U.S. than older people. Older people are mostly looking at traditional establishment media like, uh, you know, uh, uh, CNN and Fox and and, and MSNBC uh, and reading maybe new, major newspapers like uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. Uh, young people are looking at this um, uh, social media space that includes reporting from Gaza, from uh, from Europe, from the Middle East, from everywhere, and it's a completely different environment. Well, of course, uh, societies, as you mentioned, I mean, the Israelis are focused on their own suffering. Their own, I mean, they, they suffered horribly in, in October 7th and, and so many civilians. And obviously the pictures there matter to them. We know this is a function of wars, old wars. We see that a lot of it is understandable. Some of it is obviously goes well beyond that. But in general, we know that wars harden the hearts and you just focus on you want to survive. You, you feel threatened. You feel your survival at stake. You want to protect loved ones. Uh, you are demonize the other because you want to lash out. You want to you want to get the results that you want to get, no matter what the obstacles are. The means start justifying the ends start justifying any means, and and that's not like you and I know this. We study this in war, so Israelis and Palestinians at some level are not different from everybody else. Uh, and of course, they start telling stories because the narrative becomes extremely important. So the, what they show their own people to rally them behind the flag what they show the rest of the world, uh, all of that is different. Uh, and so there is, of course, a story that Arabs tell themselves, a story that Israelis tell themselves, a story that Arabs and Israelis tell the rest of the world. And then there is what the rest of the world sees. And, and so, yes, we have a media environment. Uh, in, in the Arab world already, social media has become very important, which is something that, as you know, Arab rulers have tried to kind of manipulate a little bit um, using resources to even impact the social media space. But um, we also know that Al Jazeera, which had declined a little bit uh, over time since the time I wrote The uh, the World Through Arab Eyes during the Arab, uh, certainly the period from the Iraq war all the way to the Arab uprisings when Al Jazeera was really dominant force. It went down a little bit now because of they have so much on the ground in Gaza and they're covering this wall to wall. They're uh, they're actually gaining far more uh, viewership, and therefore their competitors are forced to cover some of the same story because it's becoming popular. Exactly what we've seen in the past, and so that has generated it, it, it transformed the media environment as well. And as you wrote uh, also on 
on you know the the Arab uprisings, it was really not just either Al Jazeera or the social media. It was always some combination of both. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where you know you had the like in the case of the Arab uprisings, the Iraq War, you had Al Jazeera operating, uh, but you had social media running with some of the footage or vice versa, or some of the footage coming from social media going into uh, into the into the television and, and then spreading it, and then a lot of emulation. Uh, anybody who wanted to watch viewership. So yeah, we're seeing a media environment that is impacting perceptions. People are seeing something different. Uh, and partly that's influencing uh, the way uh, they see this. But still, I still think that with the change environment, uh, regardless, um, people who are making decisions, whether it's in, in Washington, the Arab world, in Israel, uh, Palestinians, uh, might see an opportunity because they know this is just going to go on. Uh, and to the extent that there might be an opportunity, is there possible, is it possible to revive two states? It's a question that's relevant, all right? I doubt it personally, mm-hmm. but I think there are some things you could do to make it more possible if you really want it. I think you really put your finger on something important, which is this profound disconnect uh, that we see across generations and also between governments and publics kind of across the Arab world in the United States and everywhere um, where the, you, you're really seeing this um, uh, taking hold and where one narrative seems to be extremely strong in the corridors of power. Um, and it's wildly out of sync with what you're seeing in the public opinion polls um, or in social media discourse or or anything else. Um, and, and I think that's, um, you know, and that's something which I think we all have to come to grips with. Um, one thing which you, that you said, um, just to go back to where we began this conversation, um, which I think is really important, is this distinction between a one-state reality and a one-state solution. Because I think that um, when we published the one-state reality, overwhelmingly, the uh, the dominant, uh, the major critique that was leveled against us was the one-state solution is unrealistic, it's uh, idealistic, nobody really wants it, there's no constituency for it. And I always found those those criticisms to be really frustrating because we weren't advocating for it. You know, we were not saying there should be a one state solution. We were describing a one state reality, which, as you said, Israel was in effective political and military control over Gaza, over the West Bank, over Israel. And the distinctions were about the rights and privileges that were granted to different populations, Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, West Bank, Palestinians, Gaza, Palestinians, Jerusalem, Palestinians. Um, and, and that was something which was a reality. And that you used the word, we asked this in the survey, you know, it could be a one state reality, which resemble, which is based on equality, but anyone looking at it can see that's not true. So we and a lot of other people have been moving towards this formulation of a one state reality that resembles apartheid. Um, and that now is when you get into the effects of Gaza that I find really interesting because you do you did get another surge of that, especially among Israelis. Um, who were basically saying, look, all these people talking about the one state solution, the one state reality, now you have to understand why we can that can never happen. We can never coexist like this. And yet they continue to do so. I mean, Israel is moving in and making plans for what appears to be a long-term military occupation of Gaza. Um, the West Bank settlements are accelerating and uh, you're seeing the escalating dispossession of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, 
And so it's it's it to me at least this looks as much like a one state reality as ever, um, just a particularly violent and unjust one, which um, I, you know I see no, nothing pushing back against that. And so here, but here's the question: well, let, this is actually leading towards a question, which is to say, the Biden administration has done exactly what you suggested, which is pivot back to we have to negotiate towards a two state solution. We need to um, you know do this. And one possibility is that this is as you say, something which the war is opening up that possibility. But the analysis of our book, at least our article, is that that's the traditional move made by politicians to avoid dealing with the underlying reality, kind of deflect attention towards negotiations that everybody knows aren't going to go anywhere. Um, and so, so let's talk through that a little bit. And, and you know, do you see it? The yeah. Same? Uh, like how, how so, you uh, yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, from for the Biden administration, I mean, uh, we know that nobody trusted um, uh, the Biden administration in the Arab world among Palestinians to do the right thing. And everybody started seeing their repeating two states as a smokescreen uh, before, and they saw them as embracing, in essence, the Israeli policy. We wrote about that. It wasn't just foreign affairs. I had actually drafted a piece um, which said um, uh, something like, in fact, the Biden administration was taking away all the peaceful methods available to Palestinians to get freedom, and they're becoming more desperate. And in the process, militants are becoming uh, uh, more empowered. And I wrote specifically saying that we're going to see uh, uh, a violent eruption like we have never seen before, and that the clock is ticking. I used these same words in, our, in April of last year. So we, we, so nobody really trusted these words, and nobody is going to trust these words now after Biden has been seen as embracing uh, a, a, a far right Israeli government to do what it wants in Gaza, given what happened in Gaza. No one in our world, no one in among Palestinians is going to trust the president. He's already seen as you know more hated than the Prime Minister of Israel in much of the Arab world. So he's one Israelis, right? The Israeli hearts and minds for sure by standing with them. And, and uh, he's probably, uh, but they still, the far right is not going to accept, you know, he, they're going to blame him uh, for, quote, stopping them if they have to stop. And ultimately, Netanyahu would not mind having Trump instead of him. In fact, they prefer Trump over, over Biden anyway. So to, he, he, there isn't going to be sort of a sense of gratitude that would lead to shifting their ideology, which is far right. Um, so therefore, the Biden administration's ability to put a plan on the table with something promised is zero. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm not I'm using my my language very carefully. I'm, I'm usually, as you know, uh, you know, not I, I don't exaggerate these things. So the reason for it is I don't think people have trust the plan. It's just not going to happen. So, so therefore, if there was anything at all the administration can do, it would have to be do it now rather than promise it later. Mm -hmm. No one is going to accept promises. They will accept if you do something meaningful now. For example, could the Biden administration recognize the existence of a Palestinian state and accept uh, a UN resolution recognizing Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza? Yeah, that could be that could be something that could be transformative if people will start taking it more seriously. Could they say we will never defend settled the United Nations anymore, which obviously is a huge issue. Um, uh, uh, could the, the, take those two steps, I think it would be completely 
you know, uh, I would say important enough for people to at least suddenly start, especially in the absence of options, to start looking at this seriously. Are they capable of doing it? That's a whole different story. I haven't seen anything in the president's resume in an election year uh, that would suggest he's capable of doing it. So therefore, you know, that's that's what we're looking at. But in terms of Israel, though, I, I want I want to you know kind of maybe conclude with that a little bit more because um, we know what this Israeli government wants. I mean, you know, that's not a secret. It's not sure. You know, now they're in the middle of a crisis. People rally around the flag. A lot of people who are supporting the Israeli government are not supporting their agenda. They really want security. They really are terrified. They really want to see some kind of outcome that protects the people. There is an element of self-defense built into the Israeli public opinion, right? We know that. But we also know that this government has aims that go well beyond that uh, and well beyond American interests. I mean, this is one of the puzzles why Biden embraced when, in fact, American interests are at stake. And he knows that many members of this Israeli government, including the prime minister, have aims that are at odds with American interests and at odds with American values. And, um, and those are obviously kicking in uh, now in terms of what, uh, you know, uh, he's already precluded any, uh, any other, uh, anything other than the Israeli army taking control of Gaza afterwards, any international force or any Palestinian authority, something the U.S. has been pushing for. Uh, we see what's happening in the West Bank. Obviously, the U.S. is trying to take measures to uh, slow that down, including against settlers who are attacking Palestinians, which were announced yesterday. But nonetheless, uh, the process is ongoing. However, and I, I, I think it's an important however, however, um, there is an environment in Israel, Israeli public opinion has shifted. Uh, polls show that if this exact Israeli government were to stand elections today, it would lose. Uh, that the coalition itself would lose, would lose badly, in fact, according to almost every poll that has been done. Uh, the prime minister himself is still going through uh, a trial. Uh, and um, uh, the Israelis themselves are asking questions. Uh, they're, they're rallying behind the flags now. But when, when this is all said and done, this is not a done story. So is there a possibility that you might have some change within Israel itself? Uh, especially if something is put on the table by the United States and the international community that they're forced to choose and forces the government to react, given the shift within Israel itself. Um, maybe you could say it's unlikely, but it's not improbable. It's not, it's not impossible is what I mean. It's not impossible. It's, it's certainly, uh, I mean, if, you, if you're going to create possibilities in an otherwise gloomy, dark picture, um, you're going to have to look uh, where the possibilities are, and you may only be left with that. Uh, and those possibilities include uh, creating change within Israel itself, uh, creating genuine hope that can rally Palestinians and other people to believe in something. Uh, and uh, it, it requires some, some president who's not so detached from understanding the suffering of both sides, not just one. It requires a president who's not involved in a tough fight in an election year uh, where his opponents are going to take him on this issue every day of the week. So that, that lays out, you know, kind of a plausible set of alternatives. But uh, 
if we look at the situation as it actually is now and the trends within the Israeli government and the unwillingness of the Biden administration or its inability to impose any meaningful constraints, um, what about the other possibility in the other direction, which is that an attempt to kind of find some kind of permanent solution here by actually trying to expel Palestinians from Gaza and the West Bank and declare de jure as well as de facto a single Israeli state? Um, you know, if the if the West Bank goes up um, into a full scale intifada um, and uh, that then becomes violent as well. I mean, what would stop uh, Israel from carrying out uh, such a that going in that direction as opposed to going in the direction of a two state uh, revival, which just seems doesn't seem to have any support inside of Israel or among Palestinians at this point? Well, I mean, there's you know, that, that is always a fear, obviously. And as you know, in our public opinion poll among scholars, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, a number of them, we have asked a question about sort of the consequence and the possibility of displacing Palestinians outside the territories. And a large number of them said, yeah, that's that's an expressed fear uh, or, or a possibility that they uh, they find. And, and it's, still, it's still on the table. But here's what's making it less likely in the short term. The um, first that the U.S. is completely opposed to it right now and, and, and have stated so and and every Western support of Israel is opposed to it. And Israel is still in terrible need of U.S. support, no matter what it says publicly. Even for fighting the war, this is the shocking part. This is the most powerful army in the Middle East that it really needed complete resupply by the United States to carry out an attack over a very small piece of territory, uh, uh, you know, with a with a, a modest enemy. So, I mean, I think it's really quite remarkable how much uh, the U.S., the, Israel, and he's the U.S. So that still isn't at play, even for Netanyahu, even for the right wing. But then beyond that, um, uh, in Gaza, where, where's the outlet? It's either the sea or the or Egypt. And Egypt absolutely will not accept that. They've made it clear. I mean, for for more than one reason, but certainly one reason, the Palestinians don't want the, don't want that as a possibility. But they also have their own their own considerations. So and Israel. And Egypt, uh, Israel cannot impose that on Egypt and, and, and maintain the relationship that it has and that it needs to have with Israel and any, with Egypt in any foreseeable future. The sea is not an option. And so, so for now, uh, that's why uh, Benjamin Netanyahu apparently was reported in the media that he, he appointed uh, uh, Dermer, who is the former um, uh, Israeli ambassador to uh, Washington, a, an ally of his in Israeli politics, um, to, quote, find options for, quote, thinning the population in Gaza. So meaning, you know, find find indirect ways or or, or other ways to, to, to make that possible. You've seen some ministers suggesting, uh, quote, uh, putting pressure on the international community to take Palestinian refugees, various things. Uh, something might, that would take much longer, much slower, rather than be something on mass scale anytime soon. The same could be said on displacement on the, uh, in, into Jordan, because Israel and Jordan have a cooperative relationship. Jordan is a very important U.S. ally. Uh, that's part of a kind of a, a much more complicated regional security scheme that would be substantially undermined if, in fact, this were to be carried out into Jordan. It would come kind of require rethinking completely the role of Jordan in the region. 
So in the foreseeable future, it's still possible, but there are a lot of limitations on mm-hmm. uh, to, to make it an immediate option on a mass scale. So for the last question here, before we wrap things up, let's go back to the, the survey, uh, to the, the Middle East Scholars Barometer. Um, and that's this, uh, we, we haven't uh, released these these uh, results yet, but uh, we've been asking kind of repeatedly in survey after survey, we've been asking this question about asking scholars, like how, how they would describe um, the reality of Israel today, um, you know, two states, a one state reality, et cetera. Um, and uh, and then we've asked this question in, in the midst of the Gaza war as well. Can you say anything um, about kind of the trends that we've seen in terms of how scholars understand what is re- the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians um, uh, over over this period um, and kind of what what you learned from that? Um, the one thing I want to say is about our sample. We actually increased um we had uh, more members of uh, OMEPS um, included. Uh, you know, we expanded the sample a little bit. We had uh, access to more scholars this time, which is a good thing. So we expanded a little bit. So therefore, um, you know, there will be a little bit of variation because it's not going to be exactly mm-hmm. the same pool. Yeah, it's not, um, it's not a panel. But it's, not a panel. it's not the same people. Being it's here. not a panel exactly. Uh, but it's it's a um, uh, it's it's going to. Uh, but it's still even with that. Uh, the, the the general direction is the same, which is what we've found uh, is that most people don't believe two states are possible any longer. This hasn't changed uh, with the Gaza war, uh, going back to that one question. Uh, most people describe uh, uh, Israel and the Palestinian territories uh, as a one-state reality akin to apartheid, and, and that percentage has risen over time. It stayed relatively stable since long time. It wasn't all that much change. I don't remember the exact numbers, but roughly the same The same remained. And honestly, when you talk about these same options as a consequence of the Gaza war, you, you don't have much of a change in people's assessment. They think the same options are going to remain after the Gaza war. But I, we have to be modest. Um, um, we um, obviously, when when a situation of this sort, when you know it's completely, um, you know, it should be intolerable to a lot of people, and and yet it is the reality that is likely to be sustained. There are things that happen that just you don't anticipate. You know, it is a pressure cooker that somehow, somewhere, sometime is going to go in directions you don't anticipate, like the attack that we've seen by. Hamas, um, and uh, and we don't know. And but the second thing is, I go back to the, my final point, which is we really don't know how this war is going to end. Exactly. Um, uh, and 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 that's going to obviously uh, you know impact uh, the possibilities afterwards. Well, thank you. We've been speaking to Shibley Telhami of the University of Maryland, uh, my uh, co-author in the One State Reality. Uh, co-director of the Middle East Scholar Barometer, uh, and also co-author of this new article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which we hope you all will read. And um, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us. Yeah.